Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 126. This week, we talk with Trevor Sullivan about Image to Docker. All Teslas have self-driving hardware, but can they drive? And apparently the internet is unreliable because of DNS. This episode of the MS Dev Show is brought to you by Infragistics, providing tools and solutions to accelerate design, development, insights, and collaboration for any organization. This week, we have Trevor Sullivan, business owner, software consultant, and trainer. How's it going, Trevor? Great. How are you, Jason? Carl? I am good. I'm good. So, Carl, speaking of Carl, yep. <laughs> we're going to have a giant epic party. So, epic. Tell, tell everybody about that. Yeah. So, we spliced in some information on the last episode. And mm-hmm. as of yet, nothing's changed. We are still inviting everybody who can make it to the Redmond area on November 5th from 6 to 10 p.m. It's going to be at the boardwalk uh, that's adjacent to the Microsoft Commons. And we are just super excited to... Uh, meet everybody uh, who can show up. We've invited a ton of Microsoft people personally. So if you get bored with me and Jason, you can find more interesting people to talk to. And uh, we're really excited to have Donna Sakar from the Windows Insider Program and James Whitaker there as well. Mm-hmm. And I think we'll we'll have some other surprise celebrity Microsoft guests as well. Um, we're trying to we're going up the up the ladder to to get those higher ups to to attend as well. And internally at Microsoft, we have uh, we have some emails going out to a few hundred people, really smart technical people that we want to show up as well. Um, that are that are you know want to go there and have some fun conversations. So this is I'm I'm super excited for this. This is gonna be a good time. So that's uh, six o'clock. I don't know if you mentioned that on November 5th. Um, parking will be interesting. Like there's there's actually like 5,000 parking spots there if you go underground at the at the commons and just ignore it if it says employee parking or whatever, just park wherever. Uh, and we'll be the only on ones Saturday. there. Yeah, it's- we'll be the only ones there. That's why we'll literally have like 5,000 parking spots available. <laughs> so parking should be pretty good. You just got to find your way. Luckily, that restaurant is, is on the map. So... Um, we have all that. Just check, check the show notes and we'll have a link to all the, uh, the details there. Okay. Who's our Infragistics ultimate winner of the week? Uh, this week, the winner is Mark Sabald. He reached out to us on Facebook. Uh, he wrote admiring my huge MS dev show mug handed to me personally by Carl Schweitzer at the Milwaukee code camp last Saturday. And yes, I was, uh, I helped, uh, put on the Milwaukee code camp as mm-hmm. alongside Greg Levenhagen and a few other, uh, great people. And uh, for some of the giveaways, I gave away some of our awesome MS Dev Show mugs. And yeah. uh, so in addition to winning the mug, you win an Infragistics Ultimate License. So if you would like to get mentioned on the show, just like Mark did, send an email to feedback at msdevshow.com or comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher. We really like those five-star iTunes reviews. Yeah. Which is bigger, the license or the the mug? <laughs> uh, this physically, is like, this the is mug like is the mug. Yeah, it's like the size of a planet. All right. So uh, the last episode, we had talked a bit about how Google is going to be optimizing its search indexes for mobile. And we also had another feedback piece of feedback I just wanted to bring up from Alan Underwood. He's the co-host of the Coding Blocks podcast. 
And he said, uh, to, me, to him, it makes sense that Google mobile indexes are being updated more frequently than desktop because when you're on a mobile device, uh, it takes into consideration your location and the time. And there's a lot of things that are only really relevant for certain portions of the day, or they happen for a short period of time and then they fall off. So for him, it really makes sense that you're going to get more accurate information on mobile. Uh, now that stuff's probably not going to contain stuff that we'd be interested, like documentation for Azure, for instance. But, um, <laughs> you know, if it's, if we're doing a search on like, you know, Hey, what are these Greek restaurants near me? You know, yeah. those are going to, or, you know, especially like food trucks or something like that. Um, mm -hmm. that's going to really fluctuate, like even by like tweets that those, um, those Twitter accounts for the food trucks would have. So yeah. he brings up some really good points on why mobile, why they have a mobile index and why mobile index is more important to keep uh, fresh. Yeah. Well, he's clearly like way smarter than us because whenever, whenever we were thinking about it, it was more, the, the way that the article made it sound, it was more like how the information was presented. It seemed like Google was going to be like holding back up-to-date information if you were on a desktop. And I think we sort of fixated on that. It's like, hey, that's that that just seems like a jerk move. But Alan, he thought about it from the the other side, which is that it's it's simply a matter of them indexing it. it the, the the presentation of the information actually doesn't change at all. Like it it just happens to be that the information is more up to date. So thank you, Alan, um, for uh, opening our eyes there and actually explaining that <laughs> the right way. So I wish you would have been on that episode for the news section. Uh, okay, so should we get to the news? Absolutely. Okay, so our first news item is gone uh, because of our second news item. <laughs> so let's explain. Uh, DNS really does run the internet. So like yes. half the internet is down right now. Yeah, and for right, you know, for this is a news item because for us we're experiencing it right now. Um, yeah. Apparently, Dyne DNS is having a, a DNS outage, and you know, as I, you know. Uh, we were having a little bit of discussion before the show. We were talking about like how DNS has a time to live. So these mm -hmm. entries are going to expire. And if they're not the canonical source, they're going to look recursively up the chain to what it should be. And if it can't mm -hmm. find it, it's going to run out and we're not going to have these addresses. Yeah. Did you have any comment on this, Trevor? Um, well, GitHub in, in particular and Slack and Twitter are all resources I use on a daily basis. Uh, and so I basically can't communicate with my customer right now because uh, <laughs> because Slack is down. So, Ouch. Yeah, yeah I, I was thinking whenever this first went down, I'm like, man, I, I wish that like the we would cache things longer. But actually, a couple of years ago, um, everybody bumped down their their TTL, like the TTL of of DNS in general, and the internet went down. It used to be, um, I you know, I guess we're we're probably all old enough to remember this. There there was a time when you'd update your DNS settings, and then you'd have to wait a day to <laughs> to see if it took effect. And if you screwed up by publishing like incorrect DNS information, uh, yeah, you were just you were just toast for an entire day. And now, like I, I sit there, I make a DNS change, I I keep like hitting refresh because. Yep. It generally takes like a few minutes, um, an hour at most, like nobody really caches for longer than an hour. So the question is like, should we bump up some of these uh, TTL values? Um, that's kind of what I'm curious to, to hear. And then also, should we do more local DNS caching? Like it's crazy. I mean, it, it's annoying whenever your computer does it and it's it's incorrect, but um, man, it sure would be nice if, if locally, if your router was doing some more caching where it said, hey, you know, I can't, I can't resolve this. So, you know, maybe for the next three days or something, I'm going to give you the thing that I last had. And, um, you know, if it's still there, if the IP is still there, then you'll be able to access it. To, to then, me, that makes it like a really good developer 
mode feature because Windows Now and mm-hmm. Windows 10, they have all like those developer features. They should have, yeah. you know, one of those things like, hey, it's down now. But the last time it was, it was this. Do you want me to try that one? So one, it's yeah. a developer mode that you have to oh, turn on. Oh, that would be awesome. And then yeah. two, it would have some sort of pop-up. So, oh, man. Google, you think Google would be all over that. You think that Chrome, yeah, would pop up with that and they'd, they would just hit their database. Um, of course, their database could be down, but, you know, that's a, that's a different issue. Yeah, it a, is. a few, yeah, a few <laughs> years ago... I ran, um, I actually ran like a local DNS server that I pointed everything at and then it would just forward, uh, to these other places. And I was actually using it as a, uh, as a DNS cache, but then it was like, okay, this is, this is just, you know, this is a huge pain and, and low value. Um, but I don't know, I guess I'm reevaluating now that all this stuff is down. <laughs> you only, you only really need it. What? Maybe, maybe once every two or three years when these types of yeah, DDoS attacks most. happen. <laughs> yeah. I, it just seems to show like a weakness in our DNS system though like one you know i don't know i guess it's it's not like some little attack or anything but just i don't know it just really shows like a really big weak point and um there's got to be a great technical fix i mean it's had had i just written down the ip address for some of these like i could just put it in my host file and fix them um so uh i don't know it seems like technically easy to well maybe not easy but you know technically possible to solve this whole problem I think DNS is one of those services that's it's it hasn't really gone through any fundamental changes just because it's no. so simple and it's so straightforward and easy to use. Uh, but it, but yeah, I mean, all these other applications have con- gone kind of more distributed, whereas DNS is still a rather centralized service. So it, it'd be cool mm-hmm. if we had like a like a tour for or a t- bit torrent for for DNS where you would everybody's DNS would kind of update from uh, from other people's DNS and you could kind of have like a local cache that way or something. Yeah. I mean the only downside of of all this caching we're talking about is this this whole works on my box syndrome, right? You'd be like, mm-hmm. "Hey, this is working on on mine." You know, I have to do the DNS is working on mine, but here nobody else can actually see it. Uh but that's where you need, you know, good ping tests and things like that to to make sure all that stuff is working. Um what's kind of interesting is if my if my dynamic DNS DNS goes down or if uh, my um, my server that's hosting like all my security stuff, if it goes down, um, that's all monitored externally from different data centers and I get notified. So, um, yeah, that that's really the solution to that whole problem. OK, let's talk monkeys. Uh, Net- Netflix Chaos Monkey upgraded, upgraded, but lost a lot of features, which is interesting, Carl. You want to talk about this? Yeah. So uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Netflix came out with the Chaos Monkey and what this ha- did initially is it would randomly do all sorts of nasty stuff to the different pieces of the infrastructure. So it could, um, you know, turn off a specific service or an instance, or it would burn through CPU cycles, or it'd start just thrashing the disk. So all Mm -hmm. sorts of just crazy things would happen causing chaos. And the reason why they had done this is they have a micro uh, service architecture. And what they wanted to prove is if a, you know, Things happen within their architecture. Other pieces, either through automation or through how it's set up, uh, could handle the loss of individual pieces without mm-hmm. having you know widespread um, uh, failure anywhere in their system. And- yeah, I I did this at my last job. I mean, the the I I managed the IT team, and they were they were afraid of certain things. They were, you know, they like the the UPS right, the the uh, battery backup system, and then also. Uh, so, so their, their claim that they always told me was, you know, Hey, if we lose power, uh, all the servers will realize it and they'll gracefully shut down. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to do that. And they're like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. <laughs> like that's going to screw up stuff. I'm like, well, hang on a second. Like I thought, I thought it was, you know, this great system. Oh yeah, yeah, totally is. Okay. Well then we're going to do it. And what we ended up doing was, 
we made the unusual usual, right? And and that's the idea here is like you you want all these unusual events to be just standard operating procedure and then you're not afraid of them and your software will handle them. So they run this in production, which is that that's the part that just, you know, kind of blows my mind is they are actively messing with production instances here. So I don't know if you saw this in their car. They basically, um, they removed a whole bunch of features that you were talking about, like the CPU usage and everything. So that's all in a different program called uh, fit, which stands for something, uh, failure injection testing. And there's a different post on that that's linked in the, in the comments. So they basically just moved all that functionality out. Um, we should actually have an, an episode on this. I actually have a good, I have a good person to talk about this, but yeah, they inject failures into different services. Like let's just make this CPU spike in this one machine. It won't go down, but we want to make sure that, you know, none of our code can actually run properly on it so that we know that we can deal with it fine. Well, that almost seems like they're taking the lessons, you know, of how they've architected their services and are doing that Mm -hmm. with the chaos monkey itself. They're spreading it out across, you know, multiple different things. So, yeah. Yeah, they they both are are checking like different things. So uh, it's it's very cool stuff. And like I said, we could have an entire episode on it. So and I already know the person that I want to have on for that. I will. I will. Okay, so let's talk Tesla. So this was an amazing video that came out the other day. Uh, Tesla announced that all of their cars going forward are going to have all of the hardware necessary to support uh, full level five self-driving which mm-hmm. level five means no human interaction needed. It can drive better than a person. Mm-hmm. And they showed a video of a person essentially driving into work. And the person always had their hands like just hovering by, behind the wheel, <laughs> right. but it dropped them off. And then not only that, but then it like drove out of the parking lot as the, you know, the, the parking <laughs> lot was full and they went off to another one. Well, that's the part that I hadn't realized until recently is that like Tesla's can open and close their doors automatically as well. Mm-hmm. So they, they've already had this feature where you just walk up to it and it opens the door for you and then you get in and it closes it for you. Like you don't touch anything. Um, and that's after the thing unparked itself and like came over to you, um, which is a pretty cool feature. But, so so this video, nice sunny day with, you know, medium level traffic. Um, what happens when there's a foot of snow? And, you know, like on my commute, um, if I, if I go, you know, at, at, during rush hour, what ends up happening is like, I get out of these express lanes on the left and I have 0.5 miles where I have to cross, um, let's see, one, two, three, four, I guess four or five lanes, depending on how you look at it, uh, of traffic. Um, and there is literally no place for me to get in. Like I have to, you know, turn on the turn signal and then wait and see if I found somebody nice to let me in. If not, then I have to move up to the next person. What does this car do in that situation? <laughs> I'm I'm guessing it's just they haven't programmed it to handle that, which is kind of like the 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 other conversation we had where, you know, just uh, what is the how does the code handle situations that haven't been specifically developed in? Um, is it going to do the right thing? Like, is it just going to sit there like forever on the middle of the highway stopped with the right turn signal on until somebody lets it in? Um, I'm guessing they haven't, you know, addressed that at all yet, to be honest with you. Either that or I just, they came, ac- <laughs> I just yeah. came across this really interesting point about the whole Tesla self-driving thing. Yeah. Uh, a headline that says Tesla says customers can't use its self-driving cars for Uber, which is really interesting because you could basically, as an enterprising individual, you could be like, "Hey, I'm going to go purchase <laughs> a fleet of twenty Uber, uh, twenty Teslas, right? Yeah, and then I'm going to I'm going to sign up for Uber twenty times under <laughs> incremental email account numbers. Yeah. And <laughs> well, <send> so <laughs> the funny thing is, so so their ultimate goal is to use these for Uber, right? 
So they, they want you, the idea is that you, you buy the car and then you, whenever you are not using it, you can basically add it to the Uber fleet if you want to. Um, and, and that'll be interesting. Yeah. One gripe that I have, and I don't know if I mentioned on the show before, I, I always hear this argument like that, that cars are, are underutilized and that this solves that whole issue. Like we would, you know, every, you don't, you don't need to own a car if you don't drive much, but I, I don't quite understand that logic because are we really throwing away cars that are not fully utilized? Like, do we ever take, do you ever take like a, a, a 2010 Honda Accord with 50,000 miles and just junk it? Nope. No. No. Right. Like every car ends up, uh, you know, and uh, well, they, somebody they always would just buys get it utilized faster. So essentially, yeah, like that's if, it. if that were happening, yep. we'd have a, we'd always have newer vehicles on because they yeah. would wear out faster because we'd be running them yeah. 20 hours a day instead of two. Exactly. So I agree with that. But but people make it sound like, you know, our our vehicles are are not utilized. But the reality is we're at like ninety nine percent utilization. I'm sure like, you know, people well, have that thing, 2010 Accord and just park it forever. But that's the, the exception. The, the other point about that is that like high utilization is not necessarily an end goal. Right. So it mm-hmm. sounds cool. Right. It's, it's like, oh, we're being more efficient with our yeah. resources kind of as a society. But uh, to be quite honest, I probably wouldn't want to rent out my car because who knows what other people are doing in your vehicle. Uh, but I'd, I'd rather just have my own vehicle and utilize it at uh, what, t- five or 10 percent rather than having yeah. uh, 90 percent utilization and having it be trashed. Exactly. Exactly. Ownership. Yeah. So give you kind of a, a oddball example. I mean, I, I, at my last house, I bought a diesel tractor. I used it for four years and I sold it for uh, basically a thousand dollars less than what I paid for it. And, huh. um, you know, the thing sat around most of the time I was at less than 1% utilization of that, of that equipment. You know, people normally like cities buy these things, you know, and, and use them like, you know, 12 hours a day for the entire year. Right. And I used it to mow my lawn every week for an hour. Um, you know, it was like a totally more than what I needed, but the, the reality was like, I sold it with, I don't know what it had on it, 150 hours or something, um, like clearly way underutilized, but it didn't matter because the next owner is going to use it. And that tractor is going to be around for the next 50 years being used until it's, until it's done. Yeah. Uh, but you made a good point, Carl, which is that, yeah, then we can have newer vehicles on the road, which are more fuel efficient and, and whatever, um, you know, so we can, we can get by with less vehicles simultaneously, um, essentially. So there's a little bit of advantage, but I, I think it's, I think it's over, yeah. I think it's overrated. So I think that the, the other key thing that's interesting about this article is because we're putting in this, all of this hardware now, uh, Tesla can turn it on and start collecting way more data in order to improve its self-driving system before they even turn it on in our vehicles. Right, right. So that's that's the key. People are not understanding this. They're they're watching the video and they're looking at the headline. They're skimming the headline, and what they're not realizing is all it's saying is that the hardware's there. Yep. They're not saying like you know, hey, when you get this car, this is how you will use it. That is not what they're saying at all. And in fact, you know, I I, <laughs> I hate or maybe I really love. I don't know. I hate being so negative. Um, but you know, do you guys have like the 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 camera on the back of your vehicle when for whenever you back up? Mm-hmm. Have you ever had that thing in like uh, in in Wisconsin in uh, <laughs> in the snow and salt 
what ends up happening? You know, you go, it's such a useful tool and then you end up putting the vehicle in reverse and you can't see a thing again, you know, this Tesla, like every sensor is going to be like completely covered up. And, um, yeah, I, I think the, I think the bigger advantage in the short term is just getting more information to the driver and providing them with more alerts. Like, Hey, I think you're about to do something stupid, or maybe the car knows you're about to do something stupid and saving them. And I think for the next, I'll say 10 years, that's going to be the big advantage. We actually have a new, we bought a new van and it actually has a, a camera on the right um, mirror. And what's really cool is whenever I turn on the turn signal to, to turn right, it actually shows me the entire right side of the vehicle. And I can see if there's somebody in a blind spot and it shows lines on there. So I actually know, you know, um, exactly where the van, like if I have to pull into, to, um, you know, do a small spot uh, in the, in the lane to the right of me, like I can see exactly if the vehicle will fit and pull right over and, and tell exactly what's going on. So that's what I'm looking forward to is the, is the shock waves from this, all that extra information and, uh, and vehicle intelligence. And then in, you know, 15, 20 years, actually having my car drive around for me and basically have a, a living room in my car instead of uh, the current layout. You know, another another thing that I'm waiting for is is for this type of automation and this type of sensor data to start making it into our homes. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, th- there's even you know th- there's there's hooks into the uh, Amazon Alexa that allow you to you know unlock your door remotely or change your temperature remotely or um, you know think things like that. So mm-hmm. uh, you don't necessarily have to give somebody a key to your house. You can just unlock the door for them once and let them in to you know do you know take care of the dog or cat yeah. or something, and then they can leave and they don't have access to the house anymore. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the more data we can throw at the at the automation problems, the better. Um, having that data is is key for that for that logic. Uh, any other news, Carl? I think we're good for this week. Okay, let's talk to Trevor. Okay. Hello, Captain, Doctor, Captain, or Docker, Captain. <laughs> what not a is doctor. That? Yeah, not a doctor. I'm not a doctor. I'm a Docker, Captain. <laughs> you don't want me making health recommendations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, it's funny. I had somebody on my team. It was Jason Short. We've had him on the on the podcast before. And uh, what ends up happening if you have a, a PhD? He was on a flight one time, and they're like, they're like, we need your help for this medical situation. He's like, I'm not that kind of doctor. Right. <laughs> not an MD. But anyway, yeah. So you're a Docker captain. So what is that? Um, well, I keep a ship parked out uh, in front of our apartment and, you know, I periodically <laughs> go out and captain that. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I actually just play Assassin's Creed and I pretend I'm a ship captain. Uh, I don't know if you've played Assassin's Creed Black Flag, no. but Black Flag was pretty awesome. Okay. Uh, yeah, you get to drive a ship around and stuff. Um, I'm kind of a gamer part-time. But anyways, Docker Captain is kind of just a Microsoft MVP type of award that allows, um, you know, people who are kind of more community leaders, people who really enjoy talking about technology and evangelizing and uh, talking about, you know, developer tooling and helping to improve the developer experience. Um, you know, it just really gives them more of a platform to help elevate their message and get, you know, reach more people and uh, be part of a, a community of people who, who want to work on those types of efforts and uh, together. Okay, cool. So what are the kinds of things that you've been using Docker for and that uh, maybe we can think about using? Well, I mean, the the vast majority of my career up until this point for the past, you know, 12 and a half years has been Microsoft centric. But uh, over the past 10 to 12 months, I've really been doing more in the Linux and uh, Linux and uh, Docker ecosystems. And, you know, one of the things Docker is actually one of the things that I started looking at, you know, middle of last year. And I was like, oh, this is this is kind of interesting, you know, but I don't really do my I don't really do Linux stuff. And so I started kind of looking at it more and more. And when I really realized, you know, what what it's capable of doing, which is uh, 
uh, enabling you know microservices to uh, be easily deployed and uh, rapidly scalable, you know that's when I really started to realize that th this was a big big deal and I, I needed to invest uh, a lot of time in that. So uh, the, what's really interesting about the Docker ecosystem is that there, there's tons of startups. I mean, there, there's there's uh, tons of startups I haven't even heard of yet that are just uh, out there uh, trying to build solutions that plug into Docker, extend Docker, um, that, that build on top of the core experience that they're providing and provide it richer capabilities. Um, so, so yeah, it's really all about kind of microservices, um, although there are some other kind of more fringe use cases you could use it for too. Okay. So in one year, you worked your way up through the ranks to get promoted up to captain, basically. <laughs> um, not even really. I, I only started toying with Docker maybe in November of last year, October oh, wow. 2015. And then I think it was either in February or March or maybe May, uh, April where yeah. they uh, they issued that. They, they were just getting the program up off the ground. So they were yeah. kind of looking for people who were uh, you know, out right. there talking about Docker. And because I'm very active on social media, whether it's Twitter or uh, my blog and what have you, the, you know, yeah, that's just, just how I got the word out. Yeah, it's just a, it's just exploded. So um, I have I have kind of two questions for you because one I, I was looking at your at your site and I was actually reading some of the background information on on Docker, and and you brought up the point that that I always make, and it's funny because I've even talked to people that understand Docker quite a bit, but like the the fundamental description of 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 what docker is people are like oh it's just like a container like you just throw your stuff in it and then it'll you just you can just run it anywhere and like immediately when i first started looking at doctor i'm like that's not how this works at all <laughs> <laughs> um that like if you if you constrain yourself to like you know one exact environment and the same patch level and and that whole thing like then then you get that type of functionality um but you made such a good point on your site that 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 i've always brought up is you know if you write this thing in linux for example um if you want to bring it over to if you want to bring it to azure and linux that's fine but if you want to bring it over to windows or windows server um then it it doesn't work the same way like they're they're just sort of incompatible um containers at that point right yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the challenges that I have with uh, with marketing is uh, you know mar marketing is interesting because number one it, it it's it's your primary message primary method of getting a message out to your uh, potential customer base and so um, anytime that you've got a you know a large organization I mean Microsoft for example that uh, you know comes out with some new platform some new feature on a platform um, you know that they're always eager to get that message out and be like right. hey this is what we're working on at like but, any cost yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly at any cost. And what ends up happening is that these marketing departments get super eager, people get super pumped up, you know, engineers get super pumped up about getting their work out into the real world, which is great. But you got to kind of pull yourself back and be like, okay, how are enterprise customers actually going to use this, right? right? And how are when, when I tell somebody, hey, you can create a container and run it anywhere. Uh, like you have to you have to break out of this kind of scope of, you know, everywhere being Linux to Hey, people run Macs. People run Windows. Yeah. Uh, people don't always have access to to Linux, or I mean, maybe they have access to it, but that's not their primary uh, environment, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have you have to just be realistic with people about what it actually does do. I mean, if there is a vision out there to eventually use, you know, the Docker API on Windows, which we now have today with Server 2016, that's great. But point mm -hmm. out the fact that there is a difference between Linux containers and Windows containers. Yeah, and there's still advantages. We just got to remember, yeah, that the the marketing message is 
is not necessarily the the technically correct message. Right. And then, um, you know, because my, my first realization was whenever I took, um, I think I was running out of Ubuntu and like I pulled out an image with like Fedora and all of a sudden like I, I went in and I said, oh, what version of Linux is this? And it's like, oh, this is Fedora. I'm like, whoa, okay, <laughs> that's interesting. You know, same kernel, but it's all different binaries and everything. Yep. Um, so I guess one one sort of tangent question that I have is um you know the 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 problem that i've always seen with this is and and not to like you know (laughs) sorry for going on a tangent like diving into docker that wasn't my intention but um if you have this if you have a bug on your server let's say you have let's say you have a a version of the kernel that's like one version behind um and you have the latest on your on your local dev box and that bug affects something in your software so you test it locally like oh it's good ship it and you just like i'm just going to move this container from point a to point b like it's not going to work right in point b right i mean like you're 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 not like immune to that bug in the kernel right as as i understand it no i mean you've got a yeah. single kernel instance on each host and so therefore uh yeah, yeah. That's, now that's in reality, point. yeah, in reality, it probably never happens, but I'm again, trying to separate the marketing message from the, from the technical there. So I yeah, know that Azure, point. yeah. So I know that, um, Azure has some kind of container support. And then, like you said, windows already also has it. So, um, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I mean, so this is where the, the marketing gets a little bit confusing again. So there's, um, so there's the Azure container service, which allows you to basically rapidly provision a Docker swarm clustered environment on mm-hmm. Azure. Uh, and it, it helps to kind of avoid the need to manually set up all of the infrastructure VMs and manually create the Docker swarm cluster, which actually isn't very hard at all. Uh, even if you were to do that from scratch. Uh, but um, so there's there's the Azure Container Service. It basically just automates the spin-up of the infrastructure VMs for you and the Docker Swarm cluster itself. Uh, then there's the Windows containers, which are actually uh, just containers. So there's Hyper-V containers, which actually have their own kernel, unlike the, the Linux containers. And then there's uh, uh, Windows containers, which are I like to think of it as Windows application containers, even though they're not referred to formally as that. And the Windows containers are essentially the uh, process-driven containerization that's that's equivalent to the Linux Docker containers. Uh, one point of clarification for people on the Windows platform, though, is that if you do want to get started, and I just talked about this at IT Dev Connections last week in Las Vegas, is uh, if you want to get started, you're brand new to Docker and you're on Windows, the easiest way to do that is just to get Docker for Windows. And so what that does is it basically spins up a Hyper-V virtual machine for you that's running uh, a very small, lightweight uh, Linux distribution. And it creates that VM for you and it manages it, right? So you you can't actually access the console of that VM. Uh, everything that you do is just from Docker commands that you issue from a PowerShell session. Infragistics, Ultimate UX and UI tools, and Enterprise Mobility Solutions, SharePlus and Report Plus, enable high-performance apps on any device faster data insights, simplified collaboration, and market-leading security, all backed by comprehensive support. With Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Development Toolkit, you can ensure mission-critical applications delivering a superior user experience on the desktop, web, and native device environments for iOS and Android. With the latest BI tools, while your users with dashboards providing the data insights that they need when and where they need it, all at a low total cost of ownership. Try it today. Download a free trial at infragistics.com and follow them for the latest updates in UX and UI development, reporting and collaboration, 
at Infragistics on Twitter. And remember, each week, if we pick your comment on the show, you will get a free copy of Infragistics Ultimate UX and UI Toolset. Very cool. I'm still waiting for the the Linux subsystem for Windows. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know what the status is, but like, I really want that to be able to do Docker because then I then then I, I don't know. I, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I'm guessing I, I don't need a lot of the stuff that comes in uh, Docker for Windows. I know there's like other good graphical tools and stuff like that, but it would be awesome just to be able to run that stuff natively. Um, and that would be something like I, I first tried to do Docker on on my Mac and you know, it's funny cause it's, it's like Unix and it's like, oh, well Docker will just run on here. And then it pulls down, you know, like virtual box and sells and I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> like it's no, the, the, having a Mac doesn't get, even though it's like the same like bash interface, like yeah. it doesn't get you any closer to be able to do any of the stuff. So, um, I actually wonder if windows is, is going to be, um, the far better place to do, um, stuff. I think Linux is probably like the best, right? Because there's just, there's no parity difference than there at all. Right. I'm guessing, you know, I've, I've heard of people running just like uh, an Ubuntu desktop just so they could do Docker stuff, you know, on, well, on machine. I am actually pretty impressed with the experience using Docker for Windows. Um, okay. so, so predating Docker for Windows and Docker for Mac, which are more or less equivalent products, mm-hmm. uh, they had something called the Docker Toolbox. And the Docker Toolbox does include something called Kitematic, which is that graphical tool you were referring yeah. to earlier. And that allows you to basically just spin up a container on that VirtualBox VM. Uh, you know, automatically from a from a nice nicer graphical interface, but it's not really good for production usage. You're not really going to do any serious work with it. Um, I, I haven't really seen any major developments with Kitematic, but I also haven't really been keeping up with it either. Um, so just you know. Uh, tre- tread carefully when it comes to Kitematic. Um, yeah. But okay. what's interesting about Docker for Mac and Docker for Windows, though, is that they're actually the the intent of those products was to spin up a VM automatically using right. the native hypervisor. So rather than having to install VirtualBox on Mac, it uses uh, what's called XHive, which is basically a a hook into uh, the the native hypervisor for Mac. And uh, same thing on Windows, uh, it uses Hyper-V. Oh, so on the Mac, they've gotten rid of the the VirtualBox requirement. Yeah, so Docker for Mac okay. only uses um, the XHive uh, okay. interface, the libraries. Okay. I didn't to- know that. I'll have to check that out again. But I, honestly, now I'm going to do it on Windows, so <laughs> it doesn't matter anyway. <laughs> now that we get the Windows support. So you uh, had worked on something called Image to Docker. So what is that and what what's it useful for? Yeah, so Docker approached me a couple of months back uh, before Microsoft Ignite, which just happened in late September. And uh, they wanted to have some kind of tool that was open source, community driven, that helped people to uh, kind of migrate applications from running on native Windows VMs to running inside of Docker containers. And uh, so so Docker containers, uh, I should say Windows containers, are are still kind of in the evolving phase. I think technically at GA last week but um you know it's you know there's there's still being a story built around that and everything and how, how exactly they're going to work like how do i run iis inside of a container how do i run sql server inside of a mm-hmm. container those are things that just haven't been fully baked yet but the idea that docker had was to basically provide a tool that could take a offline windows image like a vhd file or a wim file and actually inspect the contents of that to find various types of artifacts. And an artifact is basically just a a generic representation for some application that's running inside that VM. So for example, if somebody set up um, IIS with a uh, WS... uh, 
uh, WSGI handler for Python or uh, Ruby or something that they're running inside of IIS through a WSGI interface, um, you know, we, we would be able to basically search for those components on the system and then basically build a Windows container automatically or build a Docker file for a Windows container automatically based on those artifact inspections. Um, same thing if you're running like a Redis cache inside of uh, a Windows VM or uh, maybe Apache, right? We would basically be able to search for those inside the image and then build a Docker file based on whatever the results of the scan were. So it, it doesn't convert the image to a Docker-ready container, but what it does is is it allows uh, a Docker container to be automated with all of the dependencies that my application is going to need. Yeah, exactly. So basically, yeah. So the the the, the inputs to it are basically a WIM file or a VHDX file. And then the tool itself will actually mount the image, uh, run the uh, desired inspections called artifacts, and uh, then it'll spit out a Docker file, at which point you can issue a Docker build command using the traditional Docker command line or the Docker PowerShell module that Microsoft is developing. Okay. And you wrote this in PowerShell then? Yeah, image to Docker is a PowerShell project. Okay. It's on GitHub.com slash Docker slash image to Docker. Okay, and what was? How come you wrote it in PowerShell? So originally, Docker wanted a more generic tool that would scan Linux images as well as Windows images, but okay. uh, they they had a kind of tight timeline to launch for Ignite. They wanted to have something ready to do, ready to go for Microsoft Ignite in late September. So, uh, given the other workload that I currently had going on, I, I really did not have a lot of time to dedicate to it at all. And I've also been doing PowerShell for more than ten years, and uh, so so I have experience. I can I can whip up PowerShell code fairly quickly. And so I, I was able to get a prototype uh, developed in that short time span. Okay. So you mentioned that, you know, like through the process of this, it uses different inspectors to, you know, look through the image, you know, what, you know, what are you actually looking for? Are you looking for like certain folders and certain vert, try to pull out certain versions, or is this something that could do it a little bit more generically? Um, it, it, it's actually very generic, and it was designed to be modular in such a way that other people could contribute their own artifacts to it, or just you know, end users of it could develop their own artifacts. Like, hey, I want to, I want to scan for Apache uh, .exe under the C Apache folder on you know these two hundred images that are in, sitting in this you know repository over here. So uh, it was really just given the short timeline, it was really designed more of as a framework uh, for other people to add their own extensions onto. A couple of the extensions that are the artifacts that we provided out of the box, though, were uh, scanning for Apache. So it'll basically just mount the image, go under the C Apache folder, the root, I should say, root slash Apache folder, and uh, look for an uh, HTTPD.exe, which is the Apache executable. Uh, if it finds that, what happens is the artifact creates a manifest file, which is just a JSON uh, manifest file. And then during the generation phase, which comes after the discovery phase, the uh, it'll actually each artifact has its own separate program that inspects the uh, manifest file and actually generates the Docker file output for that particular artifact. So I could I, gotcha. I could use kind of that uh, that manifest file as kind of like a state of what's kind of in that uh, that image as well. So for example, like yep. I, I could use it almost for troubleshooting. If I have an image that's working and an image that isn't, and they're supposed to be the same, kind of use it to find the differences between the two as well. Absolutely, yeah, that, yeah. that's another use case for it for sure. And then you said I can plug in new 
<clears throat> I don't know what, if you call those artifacts or yep. I could plug in a new scanner, for example, that, yep. that goes and looks for my application. Okay. That's very yeah, cool. So, so if you can, you can, I mean, again, this was the intent of the project was to build more of a framework for other people to yeah. build on top of. And so there, there are con- contributing directions on the project. So basically I, I would pull it up if we didn't have this DNS problem, <laughs> but, uh, but basically, uh, I, I might have it locally, but uh, that'll take me too long. Yeah. In any case, uh, you, you have to write a discovery script that scans the image and basically generates this manifest uh, that'll get written to a temporary directory. And then separately, you have to write, uh, I forget exactly what the name of it is, but there's basically a, a, a file that generates the output for the Docker file and based upon the results of the manifest. So there's kind of the scanning phase or the discovery phase and then the generation phase, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense that you, you split it apart so you can sort of run one phase and then yep. like Carl was saying, he might want to look at that file then that intermediate file. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. The, J- the JSON files get persisted behind the scene or behind, uh, after the task is done running. So you can certainly go in there and, um, grab those if you want to. Okay. Um, so your, your blog, like I was, I was out there looking at this, uh, earlier this morning and, and I love this. I'm definitely going to, uh, bookmark this because you have out there, you sort of have, you have some things mixed in here, but I was looking at the menus. I'm like, man, you have like sort of these high level topics like Microsoft and training and conferences and, and things like that. But once I actually dove in, like I went under Microsoft, I went under Azure and I went Microsoft Azure resource manager and I was surprised because I, I thought it was going to take me somewhere else or, or have like some links, but you have, I don't know what this is when it's printed, but uh, this is like a comprehensive um, explanation of all, all, how all this stuff works. Like this is just amazing. You have a table of contents and it just walks through the whole thing in like a super simple manner. Um, the same, you have the same thing with Docker and I, I think you have more in here. I just, I haven't explored everything yet. Um, so I, I love this whole format because um, blog posts are nice, you know, for like describing like one thing, yep. but I, I like this idea too. Like you have, you know, you can sort of direct people to this one stop shop for like, here's, here's how to get up to speed pretty quickly on this particular technology. And here's all the aspects. And I'm guessing you learned a lot out of this too. Um, so I guess it's not really a question <laughs> other than, you know, I'm kind of curious, like what made you decide to build it this way? And, and uh, what was your motivation here? Cause this is great. Well, I appreciate the feedback. Um, I'm glad that you were even able to find that because it is kind of buried in the menus. And is, the yeah. <laughs> the resource manager and the Docker documentation are my two main pages. I, I have planned oh, to are, do more. It's funny because those are what, like what right what I gravitated towards. So I guess really, I, I just looked out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, you definitely did look out. I mean, I have some kind of odd ones like PlayStation Four screenshots of a couple of games like Fallout Four, but um, <laughs> but. Uh, but the main reason that I really built this Docker documentation and the Azure Resource Manager documentation is because, well, two different reasons, right? So with Azure Resource Manager, which is the first one you mentioned, it was really because Azure Resource Manager's documentation coming from Microsoft wasn't really getting updated to my uh, level of expectation. And I, in my opinion, it was not very consumable by the vast majority of uh, Azure customers out there. So, um, you know, rather, rather than kind of doing free work for Microsoft, so to speak, I decided that I would basically document it myself, uh, document it in my own format, the way that I chose. I didn't have to get any pre-approval to structure things in a particular way. And so my website is basically under my control to uh, share information in a way that I feel is relevant to other people and how they should go about learning it. Um, so, I mean, if, if people disagree with my format, that's perfectly fine. If people 
benefit from it, that's great. Uh, so far, I've gotten pretty good feedback about it, including just from you now. Uh, so I appreciate that. But, um, you know, you, you can't satisfy everybody. And so, some people are going to learn better with my format. Some people are going to learn better with other formats out there. And uh, it's basically just another resource to help uh, push people forward with ARM. Okay. You even have like PowerShell feedback out here. This is cool. I, I like this because it's like, it's like everything Trevor. Um, I can, I can go to one place and, and it's, it's just kind of cool how you have it organized out here. Actually, one other page I have that I started putting together, if you go to Microsoft and then Windows 10 tips and tricks, I started uh, putting some some tips and tricks out there to just like simple stuff. Oh, so so Carl, do you think he has the graphics one here? He probably does not. Ah, okay. So what, what was the key combination for that again, Carl? The Windows key, shift, control, B. Yeah. So Trevor, don't hit that now. Uh, <laughs> I just did. Okay. <laughs> it didn't do anything. Actually, no, it, it, if you looked, okay. you, your your f- monitor would have flashed because flashed, it right? reset the graphics stack. Okay. Did you say control? I believe so. It's on our show notes, which is not yeah, it's, being- It's Windows key, control, shift, B. Okay. I didn't hit control, so I'm, I'm going to- I'm going to avoid doing that for now since you, yeah, it resets the, the graphic stack. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. I haven't wow. had that. How did I haven't had that? that actually fix an issue yet. Yeah. Where did you find that Carl? I found that <laughs> Were you looking Twitter. through the windows source. Oh, okay. <laughs> you didn't Carl find it on Trevor Sullivan.net. <laughs> no, not yet, but now you can, you can add that one in there. And then, uh, I was just looking at what you enable hyper. Yeah, that's cool. And it look, I, I, I kind of suspected too. One of the reasons you've written a lot of this stuff is for your own reference. Oh Yeah. Yep. Yeah, because I, I see like, you know, enable Hyper-V on Windows 10 and you have like the the PowerShell like right here. So I'm like, yeah, I bet you he just goes back there whenever he needs it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's funny. I, as I was writing this article last night and I haven't written any articles in a, a couple of months at least, but I was writing this article last night on kind of a ad- more advanced PowerShell WMI topic that I haven't really touched on much lately. And as I was doing research for it, I actually came across an article that I'd written about two years ago for the Scripting Guys blog. And so that's that's referenced in there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. The other thing that you should do is, and for the Windows 10 section, is add the uh, the God Mode folder. If yeah. You're, if you're familiar with that, I I I enabled it one time a while ago, but yeah, it's one of those things I can never remember to to um you know to use. I had it turned on forever, and I would just never remember to actually go in there. Yeah. So, so I have this weird thing where I try to do things natively like i'm not a huge like customizer, and I'm kind of changing that a little bit where I'll I'll start. Kate kind of taking internal mental dependencies upon tools that aren't provided out of the box. But up until this point, one of the things that I've really tried to do is focus on the core experience so that anytime, because uh, what I see a lot of people do in the IT industry, developers, engineers, a- anybody, is that they 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 make these assumptions in conversations and they, they presume that you have this tool pre-installed or they presume that it's configured in a particular way. And you simply can't always make those assumptions based off of how different people configure their environments. And so uh, I've always kind of prided myself on, on understanding at a very intimate level the core experience on you know Windows or the core experience in PowerShell. Like I wouldn't mm-hmm. use a profile script to kind of set up my environment. I would just use a raw environment every single time that I fire up PowerShell, right? And that helps to reinforce a lot of concepts, but it also does, on the flip side, kind of prohibit, uh, you know, certain innovation. Okay, cool. I like it. And then on the Docker side of things, the reason I really wrote the Docker documentation page is because I was literally trying to learn Docker a year ago. I, yeah. I, I had no idea what software containers are. I had no idea what uh, 
kernel namespaces or C groups were. And so I was just coming through here trying to document to the best of my ability, uh, you know, what you can do with Docker and how it works and what the different components of it are. Things like the Docker Hub, which is a repository for Docker container images. And you've got Docker Machine versus Docker Compose versus Docker itself. And so just it's really important for people to kind of understand all these concepts uh, when they're brand new to the ecosystem. Yeah, and a great way to learn is to, is to document it like that. So, and I'm I'm sure you know I've gone back and actually made some small edits to this just based on my uh, better understanding, my my more recent understanding of things. Yeah. Uh, you know, I didn't word things quite the right way, and but you got to try and just iterate. Okay. Uh, anything else you wanted to mention uh, pertaining to? Containers, Docker, anything? <laughs> yeah, containers, PowerShell, <laughs> anything else we mentioned? I, I, um, I think there's lots of good information locked up in your head, but I just—is there anything that you're you're dying to to get out there that we uh, we glazed over or forgot to mention? There's a new version of Vim. <laughs> I'm not a heavy Vim user, but it's I, I, I'm actually I'm learning more and more about it every day, and yeah. uh, it's actually pretty darn cool. Okay, so that's some, yeah, that's, that's something I just have not gotten into yet. So I you should, know what's I interesting. You you should try Vim and look the the learning curve is steep. Don't don't let these experienced yeah. people trick you. They they say I actually, hey, I actually it's used really it in to college. <laughs> yeah, no, I remember. Yeah, I used it in college and I've used it you know like one time each year um, since then. But yeah, that's about it. I mean, I was literally watching this YouTube video like yesterday or the day before, like on some Vim tips and tricks. And the guy the guy was saying that uh, it that Vim that you didn't have to conform to Vim, Vim conformed to you as a, as a human. And I, I just, I, I fundamentally disagree with that. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. But, but it is still powerful. I'm not saying it's, it's bad. It's just that you do have to learn the tool. It's not like yeah. the tool just naturally works. Like PowerShell on the other hand, naturally comes to you. Like PowerShell just makes sense as a human. Right. Yeah. And it was designed to be that way. And I love it. Yeah, but. absolutely. Okay. Carl, what do you got for the dev tip of the week? So, I, I know a lot of developers use Slack, and especially if you belong to Slacks that have a lot of people on, uh, one of the things that might you might not realize is how many different channels are getting added because you're not being invited to all the new ones. Uh, so one thing that I find uh, really useful when using Slack is just creating a channel that people can announce what channels they're creating. And that way, how do, how do I know when you create that one though? So <laughs> you, you'll get a notification or you put it in general or something for, you know, to invite everybody okay. over to that one. But uh, make sure you say at everyone. <laughs> <laughs> no, never People use love that. that. <laughs> Disable People that. People love that. Yeah. Uh, please but, um, you know, this has come up uh, recently on uh, a few of the Slack channels I've uh, been a part of. And the ones where we've added this, we've called it like channels channel. Uh, it's actually been really good. Uh, one of the things that I anticipated is just people do announce things and they get old or whatever. But, you know, a few people have been really creative and be like, hey, you know, I'm a member of, you know, these three right here that are really useful to me. And I would like more people joining in the discussion. And that's actually something that's been really cool. Just, you know, seeing, you know, people, people inviting other people in for discussions, not just a, you know, blind, you know, like here's this channel thing. Okay, cool. Okay. Trevor, I need you to pick a number between one and four inclusive. Uh, geez. I didn't know I was going to be put on the spot. How about four? <laughs> yeah. Like that's the easy part. Okay. Here we go. Four. Four, four is well, the number of beers that I currently want. <laughs> <laughs> Only. Okay. Would you rather have four beers? No, just kidding. Uh, would you rather have clumps of hair growing on your tongue <laughs> or have clumps of hair growing on the outside of your nose and ears? Ugh. 
Are you asking me? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you pick four. I didn't. <laughs> okay. Well, considering that I like to enjoy my beard, definitely not the tongue. So I guess clumps of hair on my nose and what? Ears? Yeah. Which is really not much different than reality for many of us. Um, yeah. I think I have some there. Yeah. Okay, Carl. I'll take number pick one. Number, number one. <laughs> I think this one's this one is going to make you think. Would you rather have 14 fingers or 16 toes? Huh. And I want to know if this one's retroactive. Like, so do I, do I get them from, yeah, because like I've already learned how to type, right? So like adding yeah. four more, like how many fingers do I have? Adding four more fingers would be, um, you know, I don't know. It, like if I had it from the beginning, then I could have learned to have typed with them and been like super efficient. Yeah. It, Cause I'd it, actually have some fingers for the symbols. Yeah. It, it, <laughs> yeah. If it's going forward, I would probably go with toes just for that scenario because your hands are so dexterous and you're used to all the capabilities that you can adding new ones would definitely throw you off. Yeah. But if it's retroactive, then you take the 14. Yeah. Okay. Cause at this point, all I would need for, for as new shoes for my feet, if it was toes. Yeah. So I will send a message to you got to be kidding and, uh, and get some clarification on that. (laughs) So we can discuss, (laughs) I will get on that. Uh, okay. Trevor, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me a lot of places. Um, Twitter <laughs> your window right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's scary. Um, PC geek 86 on Twitter, uh, Trevor Sullivan.net. Uh, my business site is art of shell.com. Yeah. Uh, Twitter's art of shell for that as well. Um, there's also okay. a, a online video streaming page at learn.artofshell.com. Okay. Uh, so you can go there and for 12 bucks a month or 120 bucks a year, I think 10 bucks a month, you can uh, get some video training on Docker, PowerShell, Azure, that kind of stuff. Oh, that's cool. Um, so yeah, can okay. always reach out to me anytime. Okay. So can I ask where the PC geek 86 came from? Is the 86 in reference to the 8086 architecture or something else? Uh, actually, no, that's the year I was born. Okay. Was that was, that was my second guess. <laughs> yeah. I've okay. held that alias for quite a long time and it just hasn't really benefited me to change it. So, okay. That sounds good. Okay. Carl, where can people find you? You can find me at Twitter on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer when it's not having a DNS issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right now you can find me nowhere. Yeah. Uh, you, you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So Trevor, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about a number of topics, including Docker and image to doctors. Very cool stuff. Thank you for having me. Good to talk to you guys. <laughs>